Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Hayward Hill's Birthdays by John Somery Smith. That is the title of this essay by John that was published in the Book Collector in our autumn issue for 2011. In it, he looks back at the bookshop's 50th and 60th birthdays. It is read by the actor and bookseller Neil Pearson. Haywood Hill's Birthdays Unless you are a cradle bookseller, closely related to a shop dynasty, you are unlikely to spend your career attached to a single business. I went to Haywood Hill's bookshop as a recent Cambridge graduate in 1965 and left it in 2008. Haywood Hill had opened his doors at 17 Curzon Street in September 1936. The shop had moved to number 10 in early 1943, when it was being run, for the duration, by Nancy Mitford, and there it has stayed. Haywood retired during the week before my arrival, and Handerside Buchanan, who had been working there from 1945, took over until 1974. This year, the shop reaches its 75th anniversary. This gives me an opportunity to look back at our 50th and 60th birthdays. In 1986, a party was mooted, but there were two intractable problems. Where it could be suitably held to do justice to such a landmark, and how many noses, some of them distinctly well-connected, could be put out of joint if they were not invited. And the truth was that the then-owner, David Bacon, didn't really enjoy cocktail parties. He preferred something less flashy and on a smaller scale. So what could be better company than the extended family of the staff who had both survived, unlike both Haywood himself, who had died in April that year, and Handy Buchanan, who died in 1984, and had kept in touch as account holders and or friends? This amounted to 50 or 60 people, enough to fill a room at the Ritz without making too formidable a hole in shop profits. To my surprise, I find that we had nine full-time staff at the time and a distinguished director as a part-time employee, Sir John Prendergast, who sent out our handwritten accounts. Lady Anne Hill was the honoured guest as she had been in at the shop's birth in 1936, before she and Haywood married. She brought her elder daughter, Harriet, and her nephew, Johnny Gaythorne Hardy. Once they had accepted, I was pretty sure that Handy's widow, Molly Buchanan, would refuse. Had she come, there could easily have been a strong-worded exchange between the two ladies. Elizabeth Forbes should have come, but it was more than twelve years since she had left 10 Curzon Street, and, like Elizabeth David's sister Felicity, who had worked for many years in John Sandow's bookshop, she was not given to retrospection or nostalgia. In any case, Molly had spoken to her with words about her allegiance and loyalty. The party was a success. There were no untoward scenes and only one gatecrasher in the considerable figure of Derek Hill. He had asked me for an invitation and I'd politely told him that he didn't qualify. Undaunted, he approached Anne Hill, saying that he counted as family, 
though he was no relation, and she gave in. Johnny Gaythorne Hardy approached him after a time and said that he'd never actually worked for Haywood Hill. Johnny, said Derek without a blink, I have worked for Haywood Hill every day of my life since he opened his doors in 1936. During the period from my earliest days in 1965, through the nine years under Handy and twelve years running the shop, we had failed to publish a single antiquarian catalogue. I'd asked Handy if he'd like to give it a try when he finally retired, but his heart wasn't in it, and the result was something of an embarrassment. I kept some of his catalogue cards as an illustration for anyone coming to help with future catalogues of how not to do it. We had bought selections from libraries like those of Cecil Beaton and David Cecil, which could well have made good tribute catalogues, but their books started to attract customers as soon as they first arrived, and we had no spare room where they could be kept away from such enthusiastic buyers. Then, in 1985, I was approached by the recent widow of Martin Hyam, whom I'd known as a customer and friend for at least ten years. His house just north of York was filled with books, not only his own, but those of his father T.F.H., co-editor of the Oxford Book of Greek Verse with Gilbert Murray, C.M. Bowerer and others, and with Bowerer of the Oxford Book of Greek Verse in Translation, classical tutor at Trinity College, Oxford, and a notable public orator. His family naturally wanted to keep a few favoured books, including some that had belonged to A.E. Hausman. T.F.H. had helped Basil Blackwell to sort out Hausman's library in 1936. Alan Bell had corresponded with Martin Hyam for 16 years and contributed an affectionate memoir as an afterword, detailing some of the strengths of the collection. Epitaphs and epigrams, Ronald Knox, Joyce Carey and A.E. Hausman, Oxford and the Church. Our cataloguer was James Ferguson, then poised between his bookselling career at Waterfields and his obituarist's role at The Independent, launched in October 1986. In a short introduction, I suggested that the catalogue, running to 668 items, should be enjoyed as a picture of bookmanship and literary taste. Further, that the Hyams, Per Erfis, were readers more than collectors, and that several of their books contained references to that almost extinct but admirable animal, the scholar and the gentleman. We sent copies to every customer who had an account, and it sold so well that we were kept busy for much longer than the expected three or four weeks, tracing copies for duplicate orders, either via advertisements in Book Dealer or by alerting some of our regular second-hand sources. During the next ten years, business became more hectic. This may have resulted from my being persuaded to join the ABA committee and then to edit their monthly newsletter. Simultaneously, I had six years choosing and reviewing books for Country Life without wanting to be called their literary editor. But we had learned some useful lessons from the Hyam catalogue and now welcomed any invitation from old customers or their heirs to take on libraries. Raymond Mortimer's was one of them, Jock Murray's another, and when James Tindley joined us in 1991, 
he encouraged us to produce regular stock selections to include the more interesting material that was coming from lesser literary sources, lesser only in the sense that they didn't merit a catalogue of their own. I remember on my first visit to Archer City, Texas, when Larry McMurtry then boasted a stock of 150,000 books, that he'd given me a library trolley on which to keep my choices and from which he was going to pack 16 large cartons for mailing to London. Halfway through a hot summer day, he said to me, you're managing to turn my stock by magic into stock for Haywood Hill. Well, I reckoned to know what would cheer up our shelves and our customers, and that was the object of the exercise. But I assured him that no particular chemistry was involved. It was just as well that my catalogue idea for 1996 was conceived at least a year ahead. I'd thought it would be amusing for our friends to see a catalogue devoted entirely to books written by our customers. The focus would be on the generation represented by Haywood and Handy, both of whom had been born in 1906. Haywood had been at Eton and, briefly, Cambridge, Handy at Rugby and Oxford. It had been made clear when I was interviewed for a job in the shop that a public school Oxbridge background was far from being a disadvantage. In fact, Handy, who professed himself a lifelong socialist, admitted that he would only be interested in employing Etonians, Rugbyans or Wickhamists. A bookshop in Curzon Street can be class-conscious without necessarily being snobbish. It can never be exclusive. The catalogue could include fact, fiction, history, travel, picture books and poetry. If some of my near-contemporaries like Ferdy Mount or Philip Glazebrook were mentioned, we'd try to limit their entries to early titles that were now out of print. There would be no attempt to trace a writer's complete works or to suggest that this constituted bibliographical research. We were sounding a fanfare of names and hoping that it would make diverting reading. For me, there was the considerable fun picking them up. Archer City was a happy hunting ground, and I was lucky enough to come across the Book of Barra, 1936, edited by John Lorne Campbell, a lifelong scholar of Hebridean myth. He had been a contemporary of Handy at Rugby, and his American wife, gnarled and rather lame, used to come and see us whenever she came to London. In another part of Booked Up was a copy of Golf from Two Sides by Roger and Joyce Weatherard, a legendary golfing couple who regularly rang us to order books that they had seen reviewed in the Sunday papers. In Larry's literary section, I was anxious to find some of the books written by some of our transatlantic customers, such as Lincoln Kirstein, Gore Vidal and Robertson Davis. More fortunate for us was a decision by Elizabeth Forbes to sell through Sotheby's the collected correspondence, 13 letters and 29 postcards, all handwritten, addressed to her by Nancy Mitford. At the very least, it trained my eye for my future editing of her letters to Hayward, and it found a perfect home via Mary Hyde, also known as Lady Eccles, with the much larger archive of Raymond Mortimer's letters in the library at Princeton. Alphabetical order produced some unusual juxtapositions. One page runs Mary Clive, nay Pakenham, Peter Coates, Isabel Colgate, Ivy Compton-Burnett, 
Cyril Connolly, Diana Cooper, Douglas Cooper, Noel Coward, and so on. It would be hard to imagine them all in the shop at the same time, but it explains why I had to keep my social wits about me and could never know who might appear through the door. There were family groups like the Guinnesses, Brian, Desmond and Jonathan, or Gaythorne Hardys, Edward, Jonathan and Robert. Brothers like the Pope Hennessys, John and James, or the Sitwells, Osbert and Sir Cheverell. Husband and wife teams like the Lee Milnes, James and Alvilda, or the Fieldings, Zan and Daphne, or the Poles, Antony and Violet. Father and son combinations like the Price Joneses, Alan and David, or the Shans, Bruce and Mark, or unrelated customers with the same name like the Mortimers, Raymond and Roger, the Trevelyans, Humphrey and Raleigh, or the Howards, Brian and Michael. Such a cavalcade inevitably inspires some memories. Of a morning in the summer of 1968, when Douglas Cooper appeared in triumphant mood, carrying a placard badly lettered, Liberté, Fraternité, Egalité, and told us that he'd borrowed it from a demonstrator in Bond Street, and suggested it should be taken to the Tate. Or a December morning soon after John Pope Hennessy had moved from New York to Florence, when Joan Haslip, who always behaved in Haywood Hill like the Queen of Sheba, demanding my immediate attention, now insisted on instant Christmas presents for the two great Englishmen in Florence, John P.H. and Harold Acton. To give myself time, I asked her how John P.H. was enjoying his new life. He simply loves it, she replied. Only last week I saw him when he was just back from the market, and do you know what he'd found there? A pink feather duster. The only other customer present was Alec Guinness, dressed in a memorable Russian overcoat. I caught his eye, and almost imperceptibly from the distance of two round tables, his right eyebrow moved a fraction. It became clear after three months of trawling that we had too much material for a single catalogue, so we decided to divide the alphabet after the entry for Mitford and called the two volumes Reperusals and Recollections after Logan Pearsall Smith's 1936 book of memoirs. The first ran to 364 items, the second to 390. It may have lacked appeal for scholarly institutions and thoroughly puzzled certain booksellers. We'd only thought of it in terms of our faithful customers, and they were eagerly responsive. Shirley Hazard sent us a first edition of her The Bay of Noon. Autobiographers reminded us of their one-off books, and the Duchess of Devonshire admitted to the two catalogues being kept on her bedside table as they reminded her of so many friends. We were also generously presented with a fine collection of Ronald Searle's illustrated books by our long-term penfriend, signed by him. I suspect that I may have underpriced some of these out of sheer ignorance. I'd never seen a 1946 book on Le Nouveau Ballet Anglais, or a 1965 Christmas book called Pardon Monsieur, the first and only edition. And I wish I'd kept The Terror of St. Trinian's, 1953, as Searle had drawn a St. Trinian's girl under his signature. Such an anniversary called for a celebration that we had survived for 60 years and had every chance of going on a lot longer. 
It was a self-indulgence for me as I'd known so many of the contributors. Those friendships are the stuff of a bookseller's life. That was Neil Pearson reading Hayward Hill's Birthdays, written by John Somery Smith and published in the Book Collector's issue for Autumn 2011. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or via our website. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.